I do not think two mixers uh, <laughs> suddenly changes the ball game. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. So I've got some gin, and I've added some tonic, and then I added some grapefruit juice. Cocktail. <laughs> you know who would know the answer to this? Tom Cruise. Bingo. <laughs> This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. <laughs> I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. So, Demon in R6, Matthew Kressel, Nightmare Magazine. Amazing. Get out there and read it. Particularly because we are going to spoil the shit out of the stories we talk about. So hopefully you knew we were going to talk about them. You've read it already. And we are now just uh, elaborating on your joy at reading them. So Matthew's story is a love letter from a boy called Lucas to his dead boyfriend, Davis. Lucas is telling him about the depths of his grief and guilt. And it's, it's told alongside the story of their relationship. And the two threads are kind of written in counterpoint to each other. So on, on the one hand, you've got uh, the story of the, the love, the growing relationship. And on the other hand, you've got the story of the guilt and the self-torture and the demon in aisle six. Right from the first paragraph, I knew I was going to pick this story because the the prose is just so, like, pops you in the face with how immediate and amazing it is. I love how in that interweaving, it was it was basically two pattern stories woven together. A pattern story being, you know, you start with something very simple and then you just simply make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And so in one story... I met this boy, and we got to know each other, and we fell in love. And in the other story, I saw this demon, and then the demon was worse, and then it was worse, and then there was a whole world of demons. <laughs> One of the things I loved right up front was kind of how specific all the references were. So in the first paragraph, he talks about how a crate of cherry soda had fallen from the shelf and sent a high fructose fizz all over the concrete floor. And when he wrote that, I was already taken in, already right there with him with like the stickiness all over your skin and ew and it, it just primes you for that kind of ickiness yeah yeah i loved how in the way that he he sort of brought back again and again these same sensations these same specific details to mm -hmm. connect the reality of the demon with the reality of his grief so the candy wrappers that are in that first scene and the sickly sweetness it connects to an earlier memory of his boyfriend's father the way that those those images come back again and again in the story connected with me to this idea uh, of Nietzsche, which is this eternal return idea, this concept that like everything in the universe has been recurring and will continue to recur in a self-similar form an infinite number of times. Anyway, so something I loved in the story is that, like you were saying in the beginning, it is a, a kind of catalog of grief. And I thought it just captured that sense of, of the way grief is just eternally recurring right, to you after right. you've lost somebody. It comes back cycle. and back and back. And, and when you lose someone, yeah, you're in that cycle where you see them everywhere all mm -hmm. the time in the face like of everyone you meet sometimes. You see Including little aspects. the demons in the supermarket. The thing, one of the things I picked up on in this story that I thought he brought out really well was the idea of trust and betrayal. Like, there's so many opportunities for uh, trust to be earned and supported, and, and pretty much everyone in the story fails to earn anybody else's <laughs> trust at every turn, but in new and inspiring, or I guess uninspiring ways. Yeah, yeah, which is absolutely, I realize, one of the, the great, kind of 
the, the, the great relief and burst of joy that is the ending of the story, which was something that, that when I first got to, I started to doubt. It's like, oh my God, is this story going to lose it at the end? There's a bit at the end where one of the characters begins to explain the metaphor of the story, mm-hmm. explaining what the demon means to the character. And I was like, whoa, 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 why are you doing that? Um, and then, and then there's a, what I loved is he, he, he took that moment of explanation and, and allowed it to... It gives, it gives Lucas this ability at the end of the story to take this, this piece of metal that he is, he's collected from the demon world that he goes into near mm-hmm. the end of the story. And it allows him to look at that piece of metal and remember something um, that is... What is his boyfriend's name? Davis. Davis. There we go. That's, that's better. It allows him to remember something that Davis told him about... Um, a few things. One of them was that people who were dead aren't really dead. They're just traveling. And that, and that memory of, of how when people die, they continue living. Mm-hmm. It, it gives, it gives Davis this hope. And like he can, he was, he's like the whole story. He's like, my grief gave birth to this demon. Mm-hmm. And what if I look at this piece of metal? I wrote, I wrote and, it down because it's such an amazing paragraph. And I thought if the intensity of my guilt could summon a demon what could my love summon and then i wrote after it a little heart because i was like oh, yeah 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 touching. it's very beautiful and so you know it allows the explanation of the metaphor to create another metaphor <laughs> but the thing you said about the traveling I, for me that was like one of the few things in the story that didn't chime with me because i i find it so dangerous and deeply scary to think about death as too much of a metaphor because okay I lost my dad when I was a kid and that was something I grew up knowing but the idea of if somebody had said oh he's just traveling and you know you have to then go through your mourning or your grieving you have to learn that that person dies again like it seems like a really dangerous kind of sticking plaster um band-aid American. She means Band-Aid. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not sure why you have to emphasize it's a sticking plaster. Um, wait, why do you have... Why? Because the other kind of a plaster is what you put on a broken arm or a broken leg. Oh, mm-hmm. 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 Wait, so why do you have to go through a second morning in that case? When you... Because when you learn that the person is not traveling, when they're dead, you have... That's oh. a realization you have to eventually deal with. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll give you two things. Go on. Two Hit things. Me. One, yes, I understand. I, I, I can totally, I can totally grok that that is maybe one of the weaker metaphors and images of the story. Except that, uh, like, two. I mean, I think it's, it's just what this character said. Is what this character said, and and so, so that to me means it doesn't have to carry the same weight. That the weight that line carries yep. is that the boy at the end of the story, Davis. After going through this whole story, like you said, where nobody trusts anybody, mm-hmm. he allows himself to trust, um, uh, sorry, Lucas. So uh, Lucas, after going through the story of mm-hmm. without any trust, that moment is him trusting Davis. But oh, yeah, there's a third thing. by now. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, it's never late for your own growth and what that memory no, can do right. for you're your right. life. I mean, that's, that's the image at the end of it, that, that hunk of, of metal growing into something else. For me, it's also more about him learning to trust himself like Mm. i don't have to carry the weight of this death around for the rest of my life 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I, he doesn't have to carry the weight around because he can transform it into something else. That weight can lift him up rather than bring him down. Love lifts you up. Where we belong. <laughs> oh, that was a great song in Moulin Rouge. Uh, I, yes, I know. It came before that. Uh, the other thing, I realized there was a third thing, was that I, I think, oh, it's, it's almost, I, I think metaphors can be both literally and figurative true, figuratively true. So, like, I, I get what you're saying, that you have to at some point realize people are dead. They're not coming back. No. So they're not traveling in the sense they're going to come back. <laughs> right. But in the sense that a metaphor is speaking to another truth, it's not not true. Like... When someone dies, who they are travels in the memories of the people that carry them on. Their atoms travel through the world. And they, they, there is a way to look at death other than what's generally thought to be a literal truth, which is that person is dead and now they are an inert. It's true. And I guess I just, you know, it's a, my own personal relationship with death that makes me fear that metaphor. Because thinking about somebody more as traveling rather than dead is something I've only come to later on after I've processed the death. So Mm. say my godfather, who was a huge influence in my life and traveled a lot um, and told stories of those travels, uh, told stories of everything. Like that's where I got my love of storytelling from, from him, you know, sitting around the kitchen table, cup of tea in hand, (laughs) cup of tea in hand. Exactly. Possibly a bottle of red wine. Not drinking directly out of the bottle. He had a bit more class than that. But so when I think about him, it's very easy for me to imagine that the traveling metaphor is useful, that he's he's on to his next fight, his next journey, mm-hmm. and that he does live with me. But But I had to go through the grieving process first. Yeah, I totally understand the fear of metaphors. I once began a story <laughs> with with the line... Uh, I was dead, now I'm alive. There are no metaphors in this story. (laughs) (laughs) Where is that story right now? Uh, That story is in the Interfictions Annex. Uh, The name of the story is Some Things About Love, Magic, and Hair. I want to say again. One more thing. How amazing the word choice is in the story. Oh yeah, Can can I read you a list? Do you have a list? I have one more phrase that I haven't said yet, and that the hot, reeking wind, and another one about wheeling them up down the aisle. And I just feel like every, every verb, every word choice just like pushes you into feeling exactly what the or not the author, possibly the author, the the guy in the story is feeling, and it's so emotive. It's beautiful, beautiful. I think I think word choice is a good place. To transition to my story. Hit it. Okay. So, my story, Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers by Alyssa Wong is from Nightmare Magazine, October 2015, if you need such specific information. So before I get into to why word choice was a, a, good, a good transition point, a mm. good sieg. <laughs> you know damn well it's a segue, and you only do it to wind me up. Uh, that's true. Otherwise, your your little head would fall down on the desk. <laughs> Gotta wind you up once a day. Uh, right. So this this story has struck me as both is very dark and very ambitious, and it, and it dives really deep into this 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 young woman's heart mm. and this kind of labyrinth, and a thorned labyrinth, perhaps. I don't know why <laughs> you would ever build a labyrinth without thorns. 
this, this, this thorny labyrinth of, of her relationship with her mom and her relationship with herself and her relationship with other people. The woman in the story, her name is Ginny, there's, there's this thing that she's inherited from her mom, which is where she can devour the emotions, particularly the negative emotions of other people. And so she's been meeting men, possibly women as well, through Tinder, meeting them, figuring out how dark a soul they have, and then gobbling up all their darkness. Nom, 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 nom. Nom, 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 Oh, and it's just, oh, just for a minute, let's just remember how cool stories are. It's so cool because when she eats all the, the ick of people's emotions, she transforms momentarily into a shape vaguely like them. Yeah. And those thoughts just bounce around in her head. Uh, and for me, despite what some people might say, it's a pretty dark story with um, emotional cannibalism. Um and literal um well that we're back again to what metaphors mean and whether they're true or literal since um (laughs) i enjoy being interrupted with talking about metaphors uh it was an absolute just joy i just loved reading it sentence to sentence and moment to moment because her her narrative structure and word choice were just simple and exquisite Mm. um Right, so I was going to read uh, a couple of a couple of sets of words from two different parts of the story. So, yeah. when she meets uh, one of the men that she's going to eat, these are the words from that passage. They are overpriced, ugly, growling, a jitter, spines, centipede, glisten, entitled, stink, sliding, dark, bristling, snakes, hissing, cackling, ugly, viscous, boiled. There's so much kind of physical sensuality in the words, however beautiful or awful they are. So everything is slick, sliding, shivering, the rotten perfume of somebody's um, emotion. It's just so right there that kind of like it feels like you're slipping around inside someone's viscera. Yeah, it is. It is some sexy shit. (laughs) Yeah, literally. In the second one, Uh, she's meeting her friend. Echo, uh, and we get these words: short, sleek, aglow, soft, brusque, flower, flutters, hunting, solid, familiar, light and heavy, mad, fiddle, pastries, scrape, dry, dangerous, oily, luminous. And I love how just in that those sets of word choices, you 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 can understand even without even knowing much about this story that. Jenny's relationship to her friend Aiko is both this this beautiful, just domestic, warm thing, but that has underneath it this this danger, this mm. this sense of heaviness, which you know ultimately we learn we learn is because the domesticity of of Aiko reminds Jenny of her own mother, mm. with whom she has a difficult a relationship. relationship. <laughs> the kind of driving engine of the story is Jenny's ultimate excitement by what she can do but also her disgust with herself so she's just she's constantly in this cycle of flipping between desire and urgency and wanting to consume people and then we'll see or think of Aiko and and feel scared and be like no I'm not good enough for her I don't want to hurt her I must stay away and that is so you know the the metaphor of her eating people's emotions so real to me in terms of being scared that you're not good enough for somebody being scared that you may end up hurting them being scared that 
you're damaged. Yeah, yeah, it it is it is so urgent and so true and that and that that thing you described it rings so much with just the the title of the story, Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers because you have this woman Jenny her mother has taught her that the only way to live is to just to only take as much as you need to survive from people and that in taking from them you will hurt them. And so she has learned from her mother that there is no safe way to, to live, have a long-term, sustainable relationship with another person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because all you're going to do is end up eating them up, much in the way that Jenny's mother ate up <laughs> Jenny's father one and day. there's a whole shelf full of others who <laughs> she's also eaten. Well, right, right. How about that moment where, where her mom is like, here, have, have some dinner. It has a little bit of your dad in it. <laughs> and, and it's so cool because she eats the dinner, and then she's remembering how her dad saw her. Uh, and it's just, ah. Uh, it's so good. It it reminded me of this movie called Orange County. That's I have tra- not seen this movie. Um, Is you, it a good you don't one? you don't need to see it. Uh, it stars Colin Hanks and Kevin Kline, and it just reminded me of it because. There's this bit where Kevin Klein, who is a writing teacher, says to Colin Hanks, who wants to be a writer, that every good writer has a conflicted relationship with where they grew up. And this is probably true of, of all the great writers who ever lived, like Faulkner, Austin, Joyce, um, that where they came from gave them the engine to escape, mm-hmm. but also it, it taught them what love was. And so the rest of their life, they're struggling with it. I have something to say about Faulkner, but I, if you got something, you go for it. <laughs> oh, I was just thinking about what you said and how Orange County sounds like a terrible movie with one great line. Those are some of my favorite kinds of movies. <laughs> I mean, I just I'm love... Not, I'm not prepared to invest two hours to watch a movie with one great line, but you can tell me about them and then... Yeah, yeah, I'm it. happy to. It is how I interact with people. Like, if I'm presented with someone... I will listen to them and see what's the thing that I can take away from them. Linda Berry is this amazing illustrator, has this thing where, like, her way of reading books is she just grabs a book and reads it, grabs a book and reads because, like, every book can teach her something. She doesn't waste time trying to pick the best books. I like that. Yeah, just a wholehearted jump right in. Mm-hmm. Head first. Yeah. Um, there's a line in this story that, that Ginny uses to describe her friend Aiko, uh, as, as having a smell as awful and beautiful as home. And I read that, it reminded me, it did remind me of Orange County, um, but, but partly because it reminded me of, of Faulkner, um, William Faulkner. He's not a guy, you really need to say both names. But I realized I was going to say Shirley Jackson, because I couldn't just say Jackson. Um, but I was like, I wanted them to seem, you know, they're equal to me. So it was like William Faulkner and Shirley Jackson. It reminded me of mm-hmm. that. Which then, um, I just loved how whether this was something Alyssa was conscious of, um, it's still something that, you know, in my brain or anyone's brain, when they read, they have all this intertextuality where symbols are floating all around. And, and Shirley Jackson has this image in The Haunting of Hill House of a cup, a cup of stars. Like she's mm. drinking from her cup and like the, the cup is the universe. I thought that was the Faulkner image. No, that's exactly it, right? Because in Faulkner, there's an image in As I Lay Dying yeah. of the character Darl. Uh, drinking from a well, uh-huh. and inside the well is the reflection of the night right, sky, and so right. he's drinking. So those those two things are talking to each other. Uh-huh. And then there's uh, near the end of the story, uh, near the end of the story, where you know Jenny has has eaten someone that is like Jenny, someone who who consumes emotions but just does it much better. <laughs> uh, which side note, I really love that the monster in this somebody is in some ways just a better 
less guilt-ridden person than yeah, Jenny. She's gone whole. She's gone hard into whole I'm just hog. Gonna, whole hog. <laughs> Is that? I don't think I can say that being British. The entire pig. She's she's eaten the entire pig of eating other people's emotions. Yeah, no. yeah. It is, and I'm. And I. Um, I love I love that the antagonist is also an emotion eater. Let's just call them that for want of a better word, because emotional cannibal. Come on, that's uh, amazing. I love that the antagonist. I love that the antagonist is also an emotional cannibal, because the idea of a monster who is in conflict with themselves about the way that they should exist, meeting somebody who has just accepted that way of life and taken it on like a mantle and is living it and loving it is such a beautiful mm. kind of temptation. Yeah. It's very much like, like the dark side. <laughs> or the dark side, yeah. I was thinking Faith, Faith from Buffy. Oh, yeah. Um, but but the, yes, the mayor that is... is such a, a, a less effective figure than Seo Yun in this, in this story. Yeah, but I'm thinking of Buffy as being a character that struggles with their dark side and Faith being, in some sense, a more distilled, better version oh, of that dark I side. I thought you were talking about Faith and the relationship with the mayor. No, no. The defining, for some people, one true pairing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is Buffy and Faith, which I have seen referred to on Tumblr as Fuffy. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so anyway, Bad. back to that image. There's, a, there's this moment near the end of the story where, where Jenny is combing through all these jars of the emotions that she has both eaten from her nemesis and then thrown back up. Because somewhere in this in these muck of jars is the remnants of her friend that she's trying to save. And there's a, this image kind of looking down of above, of looking down from above of, of Jenny surrounded by all these pools of dark swirling emotions. And she describes it as being surrounded by all these malicious stars. Mm. And I was like, yes, 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 just like those other things, except here. It's like the universe is inside, mm -hmm. like, all of these emotions and inside of yourself. And uh, it just just made me so happy reading this story. Yeah. Without realizing it, we have made this episode a 100% Nightmare magazine episode, right? Both of these stories are published in Nightmare a little before Christmas, maybe a lot before Christmas. I don't remember. But so Nightmare Magazine is kind of single-handedly reversing my opinion of horror because I've been too, I've been too, I guess, influenced by Saw and terrible movie franchises to think that horror means that kind of torture porn. Whereas in actual fact, when I've read Shirley Jackson, when I've read a lot of what's in Nightmare Magazine, I've loved it. And it's been dark sure but thoughtful and serious and interesting and so yeah nightmare magazine now on my list of must reads as well it should be i think that is the theme of our podcast emma discovers she enjoys the genre of horror <laughs> um which would just be a theme of our lives in general together she and me is emma discovers that her mind is full of dark dark things and she should <laughs> examine them from time to time <laughs> Yeah, like that one time when I said I didn't like horror and then everybody told me the stories I'd written were horror. Yeah, I remember this this guy hiding in a closet and blood leaking out of it. I also remember that one time where a guy, a guy's afterimage was like stored in an insurance bureau and like this woman was coming and torturing him every day. Yeah, but she didn't know it was torture. She loved him. Yeah, that's that's an Emma story. <laughs> it's a horror story that doesn't quite realize it's a horror story. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. What do you do? Uh, yeah, I think that is that is that is some good. 
that is some good discussion of a of a sexy, dark, gorgeous, m- gorgeously horrible. Um, oh, because ultimately, it, I don't know. It's just so. It is gorgeously horrible. It's it is gorgeously horrible. Yeah, um, but also part of the gorgeousness to me is there. There is a there is a sweet, desperate yearning for connection. Mm. That reminds me of what you were saying about about uh, how it how it chimed with you and that sense of shame that you weren't worth connecting Mm. with other people. And yet, right. Exactly. That is the desire that, 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 that as Faulkner would say to bring him back into this conversation, the the conflict that tears apart your heart. That's not what he said. Oh, (laughs) uh, that is the heart in conflict with itself that Mm. she doesn't feel she's worth connecting with people, but she's so desperate to connect with people that she just, devours people entirely yeah yeah she eats them all up she doesn't know how to connect uh it's just uh it's you know what it is it's it's gorgeously horrible and terrifically poignant yeah yeah Yeah. uh thanks for listening readers uh as often (laughs) happens we have not been able to talk about all of the amazing stories that have come out if you have any suggestions you can send them our way you can find us on twitter at storyological which is story like the thing we're talking about oh like omg that really is a unicorn and logical like not your tax forms thanks for listening see you next time happy reading <laughs>